Welcome to Season 5 of the HPS Cast. I'm your host, Colbert Cannon. If you're new to the pod, HPS is a global investment firm. We manage approximately $75 billion in assets for a broad range of institutional investors. That capital is invested across private credit and public credit strategies. Each week, I sit down with key relationships to and partners of the firm to learn from their experience, ask how that experience shapes their current roles, and give insights into HPS and how we operate. So with that, let's bring in our guest. Our guest this week is the vice chairman of a leading investment firm focused on private market solutions. He attended UBA undergrad and then took his first job post-college with a firm called Public Financial Management, focused on public finance advisory work. In the mid-90s, he then moved over to help launch a new office for investment bank Brown Brothers Harriman in Philly. In 1999, he joined Hamilton Lane, then a largely advisory-focused firm, an institution where he would spend the rest of his professional career. He's worn a number of hats throughout Hamilton Lane's growth and expansion, including chief investment officer and now vice chairman, and has been instrumental in building that business to today, where it is a public company with over $800 billion in assets under management and supervision. As vice chairman, he focuses on the firm's strategic initiatives and technology investments, and is active in philanthropy, angel investing, and supporting local Philly sports teams. So without any further ado, I am very pleased to introduce this week's HPS cast guest, Eric Hirsch, vice chairman of Hamilton Lane. Eric, welcome to the pod. Colbert, thank you very much. I am thrilled to be here. Nice to have you on, Eric. Let's start from the start. You had a father who worked for DuPont. He brought you down to North Carolina around middle school, high school age. Is that right? It is true. It is true. We, uh, we had been up in the Pennsylvania, Wilmington area for a long time, and we eventually moved south when he got transferred. Tell me then, you went to UVA undergrad. Why was that the right choice for you for your college experience? I think it was a few factors. I was actually born in Charlottesville. Uh, my parents had moved to Charlottesville as my dad was attending there getting his PhD in physics. And so they were married wow. in Charlottesville. And then shortly after, I was born in Charlottesville. And so there was always a real affinity for that school in our family. So you graduate college, Eric. Your first job post-college was, as I said, a firm called Public Financial Management. How did that first job come about? Pure dumb luck. I was not the best of students. And I think like a lot of people kind of convinced I was going to go do something else after school, primarily do more school, and decided that I actually did not like school. And so began my job search and was very, very fortunate to come across a high-quality firm that most importantly had a very high-quality training program. And so I went from knowing nothing about finance to really getting several years of excellent training where I came out of there knowing a fair amount about finance. Now, tell me what public financial management was doing back then. So they were primarily advising governments. They were advising state and local governments around project finance, municipal bond issuances. And so it ranged from everything from helping them with public utilities to toll roads to building sports stadiums, anything that governments sort of need capital for. The firm was really there, not as their banker, but as their advisor. And so they kind of played that sort of trusted advisor role with that customer base all around the United States. How big was the firm when you joined? Employee-wise, it was probably two or 300. So it had a national footprint. It was an industry leader. But today, the firm has gone on and has grown in multiples and has continued to be very successful. So now, after that, you moved on to Brown Brothers. Before we talk about that experience, you're actually the second HPS cast guest to help open a regional Brown Brothers office. Longtime head of the Texas Fed, Richard Fisher, did the exact same thing in Dallas. Tell me about the appeal of that role at that point in your career. Well, I think part of it was municipal finance has its challenges. It's got sort of pros and cons. And I sort of knew that over time, I think some of the challenges with municipal finance relative to my personality and skill set was not going to be the ideal fit. And so I wanted to stay in finance and began to think about what else was out there. And 
not being particularly savvy. I just sort of knew municipal and corporate. So I went for corporate finance. So Brown Brothers had a long established office in Philadelphia. In fact, it was one of its oldest offices, but it had no investment banking department. And so it had been doing traditional kind of old school banking services, but not investment banking. And so I was one of the first employees there to help start an investment banking division in Philadelphia. And, and what kind of advisory work was Brown Brothers focused on? Like what, what kind of clients did you have? What kind of business were you doing? Yeah, if you think about Brown Brothers customers, particularly in Philadelphia, they were typically multi-generational sort of family wealth who had industrial manufacturing businesses. And so it was really trying to work with those people to either monetize a business or monetize a division or acquire a division. So it was basically going to and cross-selling to existing Brown Brothers customers the notion that we could now help them with investment banking services. Now, it's usually around this point in someone's business career that you contemplate going to grad school, especially those of us who've had a liberal arts degree like you and I both did. Did you think about business school at that point? The thought never crossed my mind. Uh, having been a bad student, why not? Having been a bad student <laughs> as an undergrad, I figured things were not going to get better in doing graduate studies. And frankly, I enjoyed working. I enjoyed kind of making a living and trying to sort of grow a career. And for me, that thought was not one that I thought was going to be particularly constructive. Know thyself, Eric. So 1999, you joined the firm Hamilton Lane. What was Hamilton Lane back then? Hamilton Lane at that point was essentially an advisory firm. So it's interesting because I think public financial management and Hamilton Lane actually have some real commonalities that probably, in hindsight, kind of helped me get comfortable and to understand how places like that operated. So Hamilton Lane was founded in 1991 purely as a consulting business with the notion correctly that as institutions were beginning to come into the private markets, they were likely going to want and need some assistance. And so the firm was really designed to help them, help them navigate these fund managers and make selections and try to build fund portfolios. Well, so for those less familiar, let's unpack that a little bit. So who exactly were your clients and what exactly was the advice that you were giving them? So, Colbert, if we kind of go back kind of pre-90s, the private equity world was really just mostly a venture capital world. And it was mostly being financed by endowments, some corporations, but you had not really seen the pensions begin to move in in a big way. That really begins to change in a meaningful degree in the early 90s. And you start to see the emergence of a lot of firms that today are kind of household names. And so Hamilton Lane's clients were mostly public pension funds in the United States, smattering of some corporate pension plans, and they were just beginning their journey in actually having a private equity program. So what Hamilton Lane was doing was helping them build a strategic plan around what is that program going to look like, and then helping them pick fund managers. So do you do fund manager X or fund manager Y? And how do you think about assembling different fund managers to make a coherent portfolio that's going to actually align with their investment objectives? That was the business model. So you're a Midwest state pension fund and you're in the 80s and you've got an allegation to you know, public equities and public bonds. And as the world evolves, you're starting to think about putting more of your allocation into private equity in this case, right, as opposed to public equities. But it's Byzantine and who knows who all these managers are and how do you pick them and all that. And you were helping guide people through that sort of allocation process. That's exactly right. I think the good news for Hamilton Lane was that its first clients were people like CalPERS, New York State Common. Florida's pension fund. So you had this very, very small firm 
in a fairly nascent industry, all of a sudden becoming kind of the place that if you wanted to raise money from the kind of largest pools of capital back then, and some of them are still are today, you kind of had to make the trek to Philadelphia to kind of go get through that process to see if you were going to make the grade to get in one of those portfolios. So it was a very small firm with a kind of bigger footprint than its sort of size actually bestowed. What was your first job there, Eric? I got there with sort of, I was probably employee number 25 or something. It was a very small place where it was a little bit of everyone kind of did everything. So I joined the investment team. And so I was doing a lot of manager diligence, a lot of, again, portfolio modeling. And then pretty quickly after getting there, I actually led and did the firm's first secondary transaction. That industry was just beginning where people were beginning to trade fund interests from LP to LP. And so I started to work on on that as well. So in this case, you know, an investor would want to monetize, a, you know, they had a limited partner position in name the private equity fund, KKR, Blackstone, whomever. If they want to sell that, you know, that's not the easiest thing to sell. It's not like buying or selling a stock. And you guys would help advise people on that process. That's exactly right. And so very quickly, we moved from kind of advising to actually managing capital. Tell me about that, because, you know, there are plenty of firms that spend their entire time just being an advisory firm. You obviously made a transition as an institution to managing a tremendous amount of capital these days. Like, tell me about that transition and that thought process. Yeah, I think it was, I mean, the notion, I think, and what governed the firm then and what governs the firm today is sort of do right by the client and do whatever it is they need doing. And so kind of once you got to the, so I mentioned early 90s, purely consulting, you get to kind of the mid and later 90s more and more institutions coming into this asset class, and they were all kind of faced with a choice. In order to have an advisor, kind of by definition, you actually need to have internal resources as well at your pension or whatever other institution you are. And I think for a number of them, they weren't completely convinced they wanted to build out big teams. And so for some of them, they kind of came to us and said, I don't really want an advisor. I just want you to do this for us on a discretionary basis. And so interestingly, the firm's first transition to actually having assets under management as opposed to assets under advisement was having a discretionary separate account, essentially a fund of funds vehicle, but it was unique in that it had only a single customer. So it was a purely bespoke solution. That was very novel back in the mid late 90s when most people were just doing fund of funds, fund of funds, fund of funds. And I think that kind of client-facing DNA is what sort of pushed us into a different direction. And that honestly was one of the great kind of accidents in the firm's history. No, it makes a ton of sense. As you say, you were, you were doing what your customers were asking you to do, which is always, always the right way to manage your business. Now, as we're moving forward to the late 90s, by 2002, you become the chief investment officer of Hamilton Lane. That title means different things at different places. What did that mean for you? Well, I think recognizing how quickly that happened and how young I still was, it was clearly desperate times, desperate measures. So firm was beginning to grow rapidly, and this was just kind of all hands on deck. So what did that mean? It meant that I was overseeing all of the firm's investment activities around the world across all strategies. At that point, we're doing co-investments, investing alongside fund managers directly in deals, companies on a regular basis. Secondaries were becoming, again, much more active. And of course, primary fund selection continued at a rapid pace. And so I was overseeing all of those activities. And again, we were still quite small. So I was directly participating in all of those activities as well. So by 2003, you guys executed a management buyout with backing from Cascade Investments. So for those who are less familiar, what is a management buyout or an MBO? Yeah. So 
this was a, a sort of situation where I think the firm was in an interesting inflection point where you had sort of our existing founders and then sort of the current management, I think with just simply a different philosophy on where firms are going and where our firm in particular should go. And so we reached an arrangement where the kind of current management team essentially bought out uh, with some outside capital, as well as our own capital, our original founders. And so that was a huge event in the firm's history where you sort of saw a, a bit of a changing of the guard and a real change in direction and, and culture of the firm. We were very fortunate to be joined by our now chairman, Hartley Rogers, who had a very nice rapport with Cascade, as you mentioned. And for those that don't know, Cascade is Bill Gates's investment arm, his personal investment arm. And so I think having kind of that institutional backing sort of indicated that we were a good management team and that we were serious about this and we were trying to create real kind of long-term success for the firm, but most importantly for our clients. I'm always interested in places like Cascade. So on one level, it's, of course, institutional scale. I mean, Bill Gates has more capital than most endowments or pensions. But on another level, it's really just a very, very large family office. I mean, at the end of the day, it's mostly one person's money. How different, if at all, is that dealing with them versus other sorts of institutions? They were a partner of ours basically from 2003 until, I don't know, 2015 or 16. So it was a very long relationship and a very long run together. I found them to be very institutionally oriented, highly structured, deep bench, obviously very sophisticated. Their network was so vast that they just had interesting perspectives on kind of all kinds of industries. Because again, if you're managing sort of Gates's fortune, there wasn't a single strategy. It was looking for interesting businesses across industry. And so it just made them an intellectually interesting group to deal with. So at this point, you know, the firm is really growing as you're ramping assets under management. How different is the personnel skill set? Like, how did you actually have to manage the people aspect of the job, you know, given this evolution into more directly investing? More I think the DNA really hasn't changed. And frankly, the relationship with the clients really hasn't changed. I think we've always positioned ourselves to them as we're here for you, we're your advisor. And so that could mean we are literally squaring off with their staff internally or advisor means we're simply doing the job for them in more of a discretionary capacity. So I think one of the reasons why that sort of transition was sort of so seamless was because fundamentally we didn't act or behave differently. We were there to kind of make the best decisions we possibly could to try to get the clients the best results we possibly could. And so that fabric has, I think, has just consistently held together. No, and I'm sure it served you well. What about sort of back office and technology? How much did you have to invest in that in order to manage this transition in the business? Significant. I mean, I think for us, and, and it's frankly a huge focus of ours today, we recognized a number of years ago that the firm, frankly, really needed to pivot much more aggressively towards technology. That as you starting to get these activities, in order to kind of seamlessly scale while at the exact same time keeping the customer service levels as high as they were when you had a very small customer base, one of the only ways to do that is by kind of leveraging talent with better technology. And so that for us was an important recognition and a real pivot in the business. Yeah, and we'll talk more about some of the tech investments you made in a little bit. But, you know, through this evolution, you as an institution have spent probably a focus area, not to the exclusion of others, but focused on private capital markets. As you said, you started in sort of the private equity world. Why did that make sense for the business and for a focus area for you guys? I think if you think back to kind of the mid-2000s, there was more of a notion that those worlds, the alternative worlds might collide. 
And so I think us and a number of other players, either who were just hedge, began to look to add private equity, or if you were just private equity, you began to look to add hedge. And so for us, we've just always been focused on kind of that long-term, we say private markets, because our world today is not just the equity side. It's obviously partners like you on the credit side, it's real assets, infrastructure, what have you. All of that is kind of now in our wheelhouse today. The commonality is that we're generally investing in things that use kind of a 12-year fund life structure that are kind of illiquid during that time frame, and that they're all private assets, non-tradable. So Eric, on one level, I'm always interested in management selection. On one level, it's numbers, right? It's what are the returns that somebody's generated over time. But throughout your career, when you've either had great successes or I think I'm sure occasionally made mistakes, talk to me about the softer side of things. What do you think about in terms of the non-economic things that make a difference between a successful partner and, and one ultimately that doesn't work? I think in manager selection, it is always a mix of art and science. And it is that because by definition, we're always being forced to invest into blind pools. And so while we can look in the rearview mirror and get the benefit of their prior track records and deals that they've done, those by definition have already been done. And by definition, they were done in a different economic environment or a different time period because they already have occurred. Now you're making a decision about what you're going to do by giving them new capital, and you have no idea what they're about to do or what the economic environment six months from now is going to look like when they're about to start deploying that capital. So I think at Hamilton Lane, we've always sort of recognized that it has to be art and science, and our diligence process really reflects that. Let me ask you a question. You brought up private credit, you know, what HPS does. Private credit as an asset class has grown by like an order of magnitude in the last decade, very much mirroring, you know, the private equity boom that you guys appreciated on early on. Why do you think that is? What, what do you think is the appeal of that asset class? Well, I think the private credit market is benefiting from a couple of key factors. I think one, yield is hard to come by. So right now, simply getting attractive yield in the public side of things uh, is challenging. And so I think it's caused portfolios to tilt and rebalance as a result of that. And one of the tilts has actually been towards private credit, where the second advantage kicks in, which is private credit, by definition, is simply more inefficient. And so because of that inefficiency, you're able to simply charge more. And I think for private entrepreneurs, oftentimes they're willing to pay a premium in borrowing in order to keep more control. And so they'd rather pay lenders higher rates for the benefit of keeping more of their equity because that's what they as an entrepreneur or founder are focused on. Oh, makes complete sense. All right, all right, let me keep on going down your career evolution then. So 2015, 16, as you said, your title changed. You went from the CIO to the vice chairman. Tell me about the responsibility shift that implied for you. It was really primarily two things. I mean, we were beginning to kind of gear up to go public and we knew there needed to be a focus on that. And so that was a focus of mine and it remains a focus of mine today in a little bit of a unique structure I spend most of my time dealing with kind of analysts and shareholders, as opposed to my partner, who's our CEO, who gets to spend his time where I think we all think it's best spent dealing with customers and dealing with the running of the firm. So that was sort of piece number one. Piece number two was this technology shift. I think we recognized that while we had done a fine, I would say, average job on the technology side, that was not going to be enough to carry us into the future. The firm embarked, and I, I sort of led this effort of using firm balance sheet to start acquiring uh, ownership stakes in technology that we were using, not things that we weren't using or not things that we were speculating on, but technology that we thought was strategically important to us, we became true partners with those technology providers. So in 2017, you go public, Eric. And for those of us who haven't been through an initial public offering, tell us about that process. It is not only 
all of the sort of leading up and the financial scrubbing and all of the documentation, but then the actual physical event of doing that multi-week roadshow where you are truly canvassing all over the globe, meeting with prospective shareholders. On one level, it was energizing. I mean, to sort of be able to talk about your firm that you're so proud of and to talk about the success that you sort of think you historically have delivered and will deliver in the future to shareholders was really energizing. And I think getting kind of positive reception was fantastic. The downside, as you can imagine, is just it is physically grueling for a few weeks to just kind of grind through that. But you get through it. It's a process and you kind of move on. I always feel like it sort of crystallizes your own views on your business when you have to tell the story that many times too. Like it becomes clear in your own head, you know, what of this, what of this am I buy? What am I in my own head skeptical of? Like it really refines your own opinion. I think it's exactly right. Particularly, you know, as a management team, we were big owners of the business. I mean, as back to that whole management buyout piece, by definition, it was management, you know, largely buying a big chunk of the company. And so sitting across from shareholders, it truly was, hey, we're about to be partners with you. We own a big chunk of the business. We're asking you to kind of buy into the business. And I think that alignment is a powerful piece. So, you know, you've been in an advising and investing seat for several decades now, and you guys have been early, as you said at the beginning, in terms of, you know, adoption, understanding of more esoteric private markets. Where do you see that evolving? Like, where, what are your clients worried about over the next couple decades? And where do you see Hamilton Lane being able to help solve those problems? I mean, look, the industry has had an incredible tailwind for decades. Performance has generally been good. And more importantly, performance has been better than the public markets. There has been a tidal wave of capital that continues to flow into this asset class. There is sort of success story after success story after success story. I think there's a scenario you can paint where that just continues for a very, very long time. There's also scenarios you can paint where that comes to a more of an abrupt halt. Markets shift, regulatory environments change. Is the regulatory environment going to treat everyone the same? Are the technology requirements and the investments in your own franchise required to be successful going to be the same? Or will we see more consolidation? Can you be a small or mid-sized player and do that successfully in the next coming decade or two? We're recording this in Q1 of 2022, just for context. And we've been in a 13-year, you know, other than moments of dislocation and COVID being its sort of own thing, a relatively benign environment with zero interest rates, as you said, a yield-constrained environment. That can't last forever, at least. I don't think it will, but we'll see. What worries you when you're on the, you know, when you're reading the paper in the morning and thinking about your own investments? Like, how do you feel about the macro outlook and what concerns you going forward? Well, I I think there's a lot of things today that are incredibly unsettling. You sort of start with just the tenor of the dialogue in the country is unsettling. I think it seems pretty clear to me and, and clear from all the data that I'm seeing that we're a fairly divided nation right now. I don't think that has typically ever led to good things, and it probably doesn't lead to great economies. So I think that sort of remains sort of issue number one. And once we look outside the U.S., the picture becomes equally you know, unstable in, in a number of places. So I just think kind of that political and geopolitical stability or instability is And so I think when you look at those, you look at, again, we've been in a fairly benignly regulated industry, but one where, you know, there are a lot of people who would like to see it more regulated or frankly like to see it or believe private equity, I think incorrectly, but they believe strongly that private equity is not a good asset class or it's not good for society. 
Fair enough. Well, listen, let's hope we're in the uh, path towards resolution of some of these issues rather than the more downside ones. Well, with that, Eric, let's move to the last segment of the podcast, which is something we like to call best ideas. This is where we offer up something that's added value in our lives recently. We call it best ideas because as investors, we only hope to add good ideas to the portfolio, but our goal is always to size up and maximize exposure to our best ideas. Eric, as our guest, I'm going to ask you to go first. What's your best idea this week? I would say my best idea is to mentor and to be mentored. I think even prior to us going and working remotely, I think there was an observable divide between the older and younger generations in the office. And I think a growing view among both sides that mentoring was really not needed or not wanted. And I think increasingly from the younger side, I think they looked at technology as an easier way to sort of self-teach and a belief that everything is self-teachable. And so if I want to learn something or if I need help with something, I can Google it, I can watch it on YouTube, et cetera. And I think from the older side, I think many bluntly have done a lousy job staying up on technology, which makes them probably appear more out of touch than they actually are. I think they were kind of quick to dismiss the younger generation as not being driven or they sort of want things handed to them or not sharing similar values. So what I was observing was like both sides kind of increasingly retreating to their own corners and then the pandemic hits and that just makes the interaction go down even further. So my best idea is for both sides to embrace mentoring and to realize that good healthy mentoring is not the kind of older person teaching the younger person, but both sides actually learning from each other and sharing their perspectives and experiences. I think just recognizing that we can each learn a lot from each other and that not everything we learn in life can be found on the internet. So Eric, I think that's fantastic. I have a question for you. How do you do that in a remote world or do you think you need to be back in the office in order for that to work? I think the, I mean, the physical together is certainly easier but I'm doing it now on both sides. I am both being mentored and I am mentoring. No different in doing it you know, this way. I think we've all kind of adapted to, we're not obviously in the room together, but I don't feel like we're having any less of a good conversation as a result of that. And so I think we just learn to adapt, but I think it's got to occur and we have to make a priority to do it and to be open to being involved with it. It's funny. I feel like we've all learned how to relate differently. And one of the things that we've done institutionally is almost everything now is video conferences. Before, when I would have just picked up the phone to somebody, I like seeing somebody's face. You know, even if I'm not going to be in the office with them, I think it makes a difference. And as you say, I think those relationships, I think they make a huge difference to firm DNA and being able to, to manage growth the way you guys have. I love it. Great idea, Eric. Well, then my best idea, as listeners know, I always like to be inspired by the guest of the week. Now, Eric is a Philly guy at this point, having spent decades there, but I know he spends quality time down in the great state of South Carolina, a state I also have a tremendous affinity for. I truly love Charleston and I have great friends down there. So my best idea this week is the Montage Palmetto Bluff in Bluffton, South Carolina. What makes it great? In one quite large property, you can capture everything I love about the South Carolina low country. There's great boating and fishing. The tennis and pickleball is great. The May River Golf Club, a Jack Nicholas design, is world-class. And the food and variety of dining options are top-notch. Take a trip down to Palmetto Bluffs. You will not regret it. Eric, thoughts on the South Carolina low country? Look, I think it's a beautiful part of the world. I think it's a, a great place to unwind take a long walk, think about things, clear your head, and get a good change of perspective. I love it. Eric, with that, it's time to say goodbye for the week. What you have built at Hamilton Lane, Eric, is truly impressive. You've been great partners to us, and it's a great lesson for all of us of how to stay relevant and nimble even while you reach scale. So with that, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thanks again to our guest, Eric Hirsch. Check out our show notes to learn more about Eric and his firm, Hamilton Lane. You'll also find a link to learn more about the Montage Palmetto Bluff in South Carolina. This podcast was brought to you by Atwill Media with HPS Investment Partners. 
please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen.